every writer should know that this is a lot more work than you ever imagined. And you have to get good at a lot more skill sets than you ever imagined. That's true whether you have a traditional big five publisher or if you do the indie. Write the world-changing book that will help grow your personal brand and your business as it makes the world a better place. Welcome to the Author's Corner, hosted by Robin Colucci. Every episode, we bring you some of the most successful authors, as well as other industry experts, to share some inspiration, motivation, tactical strategy, and fun. We'll also talk about the challenges and trends in the publishing industry. Don't get stuck in the idea phase. Join the Author's Corner today. Start writing the book you've dreamed about. Hi again, and welcome to the Author's Corner. I'm your host, Robin Colucci, and today... We have with us a true Renaissance man. Gary Benger is a writer, philosopher, and technologist. Gary grew up in a small Midwest town of Richmond, Ohio, and during that time developed a very early on a love for nature, and he learned self-reliance. He went on to Kent State University, became hooked on astronomy, and his fascination with science drew him to California's tech industry, where he became eBay's chief financial officer. Gary also has an MBA from Harvard Business School and an MA degree in philosophy from San Francisco State University. And he's also a vinter. So the Benger Vineyard is a six-acre vineyard in the Napa Valley where he makes his own certified organic wine and he lives in San Francisco. But what can we say? I mean, I was so excited when Gary reached out because he obviously came here to the author's corner to speak with us about his novel, Unfettered Journey, which he released in 2020 which through his own imprint. So it's a self-published book. And though it's received multiple awards and really great reviews from some of the best reviewing outlets. And so it's, and I even read some of it and it's really, really well-written and incredibly interesting science fiction. So when Gary is talking with us today, you're going to hear a lot of incredible insights about character and writing and imagination and a lot of the ups and downs of the journey to authorship. So I encourage you to pour yourself a nice glass of red wine, sit back and enjoy. So, Gary, welcome to the Author's Corner. Well, Rob, I'm delighted to be here, and thanks for letting me join you and your audience and talk about books and writing, and then my particular book, Unfettered Journey, my new novel. Yes, and I am so excited to have you here. I was obviously enticed by your really interesting background of being CFO of eBay and then owning a vineyard. I mean, (laughs) how many... Two things I enjoy both, eBay and wine. (laughs) Ideally not together because then I spend too much on eBay. (laughs) Close that auction. That's right. (laughs) 
<laughs> but yeah, so that's fantastic. And I was also just so wowed, frankly, by the reviews that you received. And of course, I did a little snooping and I did not read your novel cover to cover, but I definitely read some of it. And I was also duly impressed by the quality of the writing and I found it to be very alluring. I'll have to go back and finish it for sure. So, so I've got some, I think, kick-ass women characters in this book. So yeah, with whom I'm very proud of. That's fantastic. Well, I was intrigued by the AI one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. One has to capture the reader's attention on the first page, right? Yes, and if you absolutely did that. And gosh, I'm just so flooded with questions right now that are competing in my brain. So let's just try to slow me down and <laughs> keep the listeners in line with us here. Tell me a little bit about what, I mean, obviously your background, you know, Harvard Business School, tech yeah. startup, P IPOs. What led you to the decision even to write a novel? <laughs> well, I had some ideas that I've been mulling on for going on 30 years, and uh, they had to get onto the page finally. So that's the meta reason why. And you're right, I spent uh, about 30 years in tech, and fortunately, many of the leading tech subfields like bioscience and computer peripherals and chip design and video over the internet and then the internet itself with eBay and finance and strategy roles. So I had a great time and I love tech. And so that was something interesting to think about the future and how tech will, where will that take us and what's next? And so, so my novel is a hard science view of the near future. It's an adventure and love story. And so that was one thing is to think, where are we going? And then what's that life going to be like? And I had a different view on science fiction than you sometimes see, because quite honestly, I think many science fiction writers have given up because it's so hard to predict the future, right? It's, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you wrote a book in 2005, you may have totally missed the, uh, you know, 2007 was the iPhone and what happened next. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Your story's all wrong. So it's really hard to predict the future. And so I think a lot of science fiction writers tend to give up. You know, we've got dragons. We had so much fantasy science fiction. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Anytime I think about science fiction and technology, I just go back. You know, it took a while, actually, for the flip phone in Star Trek to become obsolete. <laughs> but it did. Right now, it's yeah. like the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. So one piece of it was to think, what are the real problems first facing humankind? And we should focus on those. And so, you know, we're not going to have to worry about uploading our brains into computers and we're not going to worry necessarily about becoming cyborgs so it will be we'll have certain kinds of changes that i think will feel a little eerie if you thought about them but not much and that we will still be human and so i think we should focus on what the real issues are so that's what impetus behind writing the book is that and all right well now that you've opened that door and i think i've read enough to know where this answer might go Explain to me one thing that might change as far as how we walk around as humans that we could actually see in the near future. Yeah. Okay. So I'm actually conservative. I think we will be recognizable to ourselves in, in my book takes place in 140 years, the near future, uh, 2161, which if anyone's watching the Gilded Age, the show from 1880, it's the same distance in the future as that is in the past. You know, so we're not going to be that much different. So yes, we'll have iPhone probably not be carried around in our hand. It will be a chip 
you know, inserted behind our ear or something, right? And maybe, you know, think about Google Glass. Remember that uh, Uh fiasco? Okay, but in 140 years, where's that going to be? Well, we could have a corneal implant, and this chip is connected to that, and we can talk to our device, and it will connect us to the cloud, the internet, and the net in my book. And, you know, you can just say to, you know, where's the nearest pizza shop? And it'll paint a little red line on the little thing on your cornea and you just follow the map, right? You'll have an augmented reality map overlay, which by the way, Microsoft is working on already and it's in the factories today, right? So think about that. Is that sort of as a she single magazine said, this is a future that's eerily authentic. And so I think that the point I'll make is that we will still be human, we'll be very recognizable. And if you just get past a couple things like that, you know, we'll be the same. And that's different than most science fiction. Right. Okay. Fair enough. So we're not going to be full on Borgs. Is what not at all. Not at all. <laughs> but <laughs> we will have parts of the machine attached to our bodies, right? Well, not so much. I think the main difference- It's like a contact lens? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's sort of like a little insert. It's like a chip implant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) How deep? (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, uh, but I think the main difference, the main difference is for sure, we're going to have robots eventually walking around among us and doing- many of the jobs that humans do. That's the fundamental change because, you know, we've seen the Boston Dynamics dancing robots, right? And, you know, the economics are going to drive that development. The military is going to pay for it because it will save soldiers. And so a lot of money will cause that to happen. And we can see the engineering from A to Z. It's a clean path to make them more and more useful. And I think that they will walk around among us and they'll be our size because why would we re-engineer trillions of dollars of infrastructure to fit whatever in? So yeah, robots walking around among us. And then the key thing is as they do more and more of the jobs, we'll have fewer jobs. And that will be the most fundamental technological change this century, I believe. Eventually it will happen. Mm-hmm. And then what will we do? What will we do when we have no need for humans to do the jobs we've been doing for thousands of years? Yeah. So that's what I think is the reality of the future. So that's the setting for the book. And that raises certain social issues. What happens when you can only work? You're, by law, you can't work more than 12 hours okay, a week. There aren't enough jobs. They say about idle hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so this, you know, Unfettered Journey has won 10 awards now, a couple of them for spiritual and inspirational fiction, because I ask, you know, how do we find meaning and purpose in our lives, right? So So I was curious about that, too, because I didn't get the impression that you intentionally wrote this as a spiritual, you're a philosopher, but you didn't specifically, and I saw it was actually very popular, it looked like in some Christian categories even. <laughs> yeah, well, the spoiler alert, this is in, the book in, is written on many levels, and actually one of them is an allegory of the Adam and Eve story. Oh. Oh. So, you know, it, it does investigate a lot of uh, philosophical questions. Uh, after I finished a 30-year career in tech, I went back and went back to school. I backfilled an astrophysics degree, and then I backfilled an undergraduate philosophy degree, and then I got a master's in philosophy in philosophy of mind. 
and I was focused deeply on questions like, you know, what is human consciousness? You know, what is that I, that the center of you, Robin, really? What is it really? So that kind of question. And so this book, um, it's actually set in the future in part because I can investigate those ideas of, you know, robots because of what I think is clearly going to be an economic change, but then ask the questions about, will they ever be conscious? Will they ever be sentient? Questions you've heard today, you know, when there's a Google engineer that just claimed that something was conscious, which, you know, everyone in the field thinks is uh, silly. In fact, I asked the question, will it ever happen? Ever? Is it possible? Because the hard question of what consciousness is, is such a deep, difficult problem. So... Yeah. From what I know of consciousness, it seems I can't fathom how it would be possible, but that's just yeah. my little human brain. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you're right. They're, the philosophers talk about something called qualia. The qualia is the, what is it feel like of an experience? So, you know, what is it like to taste an apple? Mm-hmm. Right. And now imagine trying to put that in ones and zeros and put it into a machine. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. the trick. Yeah, that's yeah. the trick. Yeah. yeah. And- just the whole, yeah, that could be a whole nother show. <laughs> but Robin, you like to focus on writers and how we, I do you know, like more on the writing process, right? I'm still also curious, like, was this a lifelong desire to write a novel or did this just occur to you when you were done with eBay or, you know, like, what? what? Well, I've had a lifelong, I said, over 30 years thinking about the issue of free will. I come from a scientific perspective on things. And some of the reductionist science takes us down the path to say that it's deterministic. And I've read deeply on the subject, you know, Dan Dennett and the various kinds of free will that might be conciliant with some of that reductionist view of, of the science. And so one of the things I did in this book is really focus on that question of free will. Do we have it? And uh, yeah, so that was driving it. Um, So for writers, (laughs) writers generally write about what is important to you and to say the hell with the rest of it. Yeah. I mean, what is there, Robin? Someone order 4,000 books a day being printed today. (laughs) Yeah. And so, you know, we just don't need another genre. Something and there's a else. paper shortage, so please don't write a book unless you have something to say that's important to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, write what you want to write. And anyway, so that's the first line, I think, in terms of for anyone I'm writing a book. I'm not hearing that you were like fantasizing about being a novelist as a kid or anything like that. Like this, is that? Well, no, I loved reading and, you know, going back to high school and writing and loved reading about the great authors of the time. We always think about Hemingway when writing was such a center of you know, American culture, for example. I mean, it isn't today, right? <laughs> it got supplanted by other things. But yeah, so uh, that was an attraction. But no, this was driven more by the ideas. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing. And just your desire to explore the ideas in this particular... Yeah. Thing. Yeah. And then I actually, well, for a variety of reasons, writing a book and having it released during COVID is, was difficult for the mainline publishing industry, for sure. I think a lot of writers perhaps were disappointed with how that all worked, but I intentionally went down indie because I wanted to write the book that I wanted to write. And I found fabulous editors, uh, which you can now find, um, because the industry has so bifurcated that the six or seven th- 
things that publishers tend to do for you can all be bought off the shelf, if you will. And so of my half dozen plus editors that I worked with, one of them, one of my lead ones said, oh, well, actually, if you tried to go to one of the big five, they would make you turn this into a trilogy. Because, <laughs> 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 of course, it makes more money, right? <laughs> and now it's not that long, but... <laughs> right. I, I was going to say, that would be a stretch. <laughs> You'd yeah. have to write them more for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so there was the freedom of doing it that route. And I'm very happy with that route. And I can tell you the pluses and minuses of the whole adventure if you want to talk about that. Yeah, go ahead and share with our listeners. What did you find were some of the pluses of going the self-publishing route? And then we can get into the... Depth. Yeah. Well, I think anyone uh, looking down those two paths, because that's clearly a couple of paths, you know, the traditional route with a publisher man and agent or the indie route. And I think one needs to be very clear-eyed about that choice. So the first plus of the indie route is sort of time to getting to what you really think is important. So clearly you're writing your book first. You've got to be working on the book. You've got to spend a lot of time on the art and craft. Okay. I think I read a hundred craft books. And you know, after you've read the third book on dialogue, as you've been writing the dialogue, and you're getting better at it, <laughs> okay, that sort of thing. So yes, you got to put in the craft, spend a lot of time on that, and you need you know, to spend. A let's just take a second and marinate in that idea for a minute, because yeah. I've seen way too many manuscripts from people who think, well, I have an idea and. I can write because they can write sentences and like emails and stuff or a blog post, but it's a very different thing to write a book. And it's an especially different thing to be able to write a novel. Yes. Because, <laughs> well, actually, why don't you share with the reader, like some of these things like dialogue is a perfect example, being able to write dialogue that not only moves plot, but reveals the character. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I would say we should take advantage as writers of the tools we have versus the olden days. I mean, I think I read Melville in Moby Dick. There's one character in there that he talks about like he's going to be important. And then he kind of forgets about him and <laughs> he never comes back again. And I read that. I go, oh, that's interesting. I ne didn't notice that until I noticed someone pointed out the error in some literary work. Yeah. So, you know, we don't need to do that today. We've got all kinds of tools, right? So you knew Scribner and then eventually moved to something like Word or something. So you can organize a larger amount of information easily to visually see it if that's important to you. And we can plan better. I mean, I had a 50-page outline and every one of my scenes, I had three or four goals for each scene so that we could make it concise from the beginning rather than write and rewrite and rewrite just to fix those kinds of things. Right. So those kind of structural, those kind of structural techniques I think are really helpful. If you're Stephen King, you know, he says just sit down and write, but he's got in his head 50 different plots subconsciously. So I think right. most of us don't have that structure in our head. So yeah. these are things that you can use to write tightly and well. And by the way, it helped me because I never had writer's block. I knew exactly what I was going to do the next day. You know, Hemingway says, leave a little bit in the well, finish, know exactly what the next sentence is when you get up the next morning. But we can do that easily with these kind of tools. So do that and then set yourself metrics. I'm an old, you know, business guy. Uh, if, if it's not measured, no one's paying attention to it. 
So, you know, <laughs> so, you know, I had a spreadsheet. I set little objectives by month, how many gonna, words going to write, how many scenes. And then I wrote down how many words I wrote each day. And then you get to the end of the month and go, oh, geez, I was short. You know, what was I doing? And so, so you give yourself little incentives, just like you do for anything else, like losing weight or exercising, all these hard things. So well, just do it. You know, I'm loving what you're sharing because one of my questions that I was thinking of before our conversation was how easy or difficult was it for you to move from? Because it seems to, it's really kind of different parts of the brain, right? Yes. <laughs> seems to me. <laughs> and I was curious about how you made that transition, right? From sort of a more left brain, probably type work, just for, this is an oversimplification, but we'll go mm -hmm. with it. Versus this more right brain conceptual. But I'm hearing now <laughs> some very specific ways that you were able to help that logical organizational process oriented mind was really able to assist you. Yeah. And actually, I think it's a false dichotomy to say, oh, if I'm too plannerly, then my muse won't come to me because. This is a fairly organized approach. And then you're writing and then you think you have a goal and then you wake up in the middle of the night and your character says, no, don't go there. I can't do that. And so there's plenty of room in that process for the creativity to come out. And then pretty soon your characters are talking to you really a lot. And then you know what they'll do next. But the good news is you won't end up, you're less likely to end up down some cul-de-sac in the story where then you have to use some uh, dosis machina to get you out of it, right? Get led yeah. by. And, you know, gosh, you just revealed so much gold there because, first of all, the truth is that creativity flourishes inside of structure. And it's yes. actually incredibly difficult to be creative and productively creative without yes. structure. Exactly. And so then when you finish that whole process, you think you've got this great draft. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's perfect. And then I had a dozen beta readers and then I learned a lot of things. And then I rewrote the thing. Yeah. And then I started with the whole series of editors. And each time you work with a different editor, you learn a whole lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I had some fabulous times in, in a Slack document with multiple editors at one time, which is so much fun. Yeah. Wow. For an author, I say, absolutely do this. Do invest in the editors. Um, things like the uh, Editorial Freelancers Association, the EFA, wonderful professional editors with MFAs, brilliant folks. And so I love that part of the process. So yeah, if you can do that, do it more than you think. <laughs> so yes. I think it was Amanda Hawking, who was a self-published novelist. You might have heard of her because she had a whole series of paranormal romances that okay. uh -huh. ended up selling to Macmillan for over $5 million. Uh -huh. <laughs> and she said the biggest mistake writers make is they don't get enough editing. <laughs> yeah. I went through more than 20 drafts, right? <laughs> yeah, easily. Yeah. I think that is something that people tend to underestimate is how much editing is required to really end up with a quality product. Yes. The other thing that you said that I also would like to highlight for our listeners is that your characters would talk to you and they talked with you more and more as you went through the process. Yes. And there is definitely gold there, but I would love if you would share with us one example of a time that a character woke you up and had something to say to you. <laughs> 
Just oh, for- let's see. Well, without giving away the story, without <laughs> any spoilers, but maybe something that would entice us even further. Right, so, my lead woman protagonist. There's some reasons in the story. Quite honestly, because of the Adam and Eve allegory. Okay, so it's an allegory on top of everything else. Because I wanted to make it rich and deep with layers, but she, since the book overall is about consciousness, I chose to a difficult thing to do. I wrote it from a single character's point of view. Okay. And that's so much harder for writers thinking about point of view. You know, I think the easiest way is you write it from multiple points of view never head hop in the same chapter. It goes from one character to another character by chapter, et cetera. We know those are just sort of one-on-one writing craft rules, but that's lots easier. It's very hard to keep one character throughout because then how do you reveal what is in another character's head? And how do you reveal what's really motivating that character? So that's where you get to the subtext of the story has to reveal that. And those are so much fun and challenging to write. So my point of view character is looking at the other character and he has a view of what's going on. Well, what's really going on is something else entirely. And the woman protagonist is saying some other things. And hopefully if the right reader is paying attention, they'll go, oh, I know what's really going on. I know what's going on in her head. And he, and now the reader is transported from the point of view character to really understand what's going on in the scene, even more than the point of view character. So that's fun writing, right? (laughs) (laughs) And how realistic is that? Because how often does the man have no clue what the woman (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. And so then you're revealing emotions in the character. And so, so I was thinking about what emotions the character was going to be feeling. And that's kind of how I get to that example of that kind of scene. So those are fun to write. And I think they're writerly, right? And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to do a great job of revealing the human experience. So I just want to go one other layer in though, because I think I very rarely coach people to write novels, but when I do, I always invite them, which is a really soft way of saying insist that, (laughs) (laughs) but to interview their characters and ask them specific questions about everything that's relevant to the story or maybe even things that aren't just to get to know them and at first there's often pushback but what i have seen over and over again is that when you do that or find some way of getting direct communication from the character not your ego's idea of the character but Mm -hmm. the actual character that that's how you get that rich plot because it's not driven by what you think they're not puppets in your imagination of what you think they should do think feel or say but you're a conduit for yeah yeah so the question is how do you make them round characters rather than flat right and um, i'd like to hear a little bit more about your experience with that and how you even because i know from the experience you can feel the difference right when it's your thought or their thought (laughs) yeah well and on another level related to that, I tried to ask myself, how can I make sure none of my characters are cartoonish, right? Yes, exactly. And so even the character has the smallest role in the book, what is she Mm -hmm. thinking, right? What's really motivating her? And so how can you make her around, even though she only shows up for 10 sentences, right? (laughs) How do you do that? That's another challenge, right? And it's kind of fun. So that someone else would say something about that character. Okay, that's interesting. So, yeah. 
So, so what was that like for you, just in terms of your experiencing it, that aspect of it? Like, did you just dive right into that? Did it kind of come upon you? Did you embrace it right away? Did you resist it? I'm just no. Well, as you get into the story. And as I said, I wrote this in a sort of a, as an, an organized way, and I knew what each scene was supposed to be doing. And then as I'm writing it page by page, and then you get more involved in the characters and they're waking you up at night. And then you really have these characters alive in your head, right? And then, of course, because there's so much editing that you have to do, you're revisiting every scene with your characters again. And then you're tweaking those scenes to add those little bit of nuance to it. As it's, So, yeah, it keeps on getting layered in there. And the characters stay in your head long after you finish the book. So. Oh, yeah. Tell me about that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, no, my, these characters are very alive. These characters yeah. are very alive <laughs> for me. No. <laughs> so, and just to give you a sense of that, I mean, I was with a friend. My book is in eight languages now, okay? Oh, and uh, there's a friend who's Japanese, and I gave her a copy. And among other things, please tell me your opinion of the translation, right? So, and I said, well, you want to reach the footbridge scene, as I like to tell folks in the book, because there is a little bit of a philosophy at the beginning. You get to the footbridge scene, you're hooked. We opened the book and I said, this is about this far. And then I said, well, what's the sentence right here? Okay. And in Japanese, because I can't read the character set. And she told me what it says. And I go, okay, I know exactly in the book where that line is. Okay. I know every line in the book because I've edited them so often. Okay. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's that. You have to have that kind of closeness to the book if you've done, I think, a really good job on the editing. Yes. And getting to know your characters if you're doing a novel. Yes. So, so Robin, we dug deep into this as opposed to a writing journey from indie versus. I, I warned you; it would just go wherever, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but I want to ask you a little bit because you've done such a wonderful job promoting the book. You've had a lot of endorsements from earned endorsements from media and. You've won multiple awards. It's now in how many languages did you say? It's in eight languages. It's now won 10 awards. 10 awards. So how did you go about promoting the book? I mean, especially during COVID, like what did you find were your most successful avenues? They're all difficult, I'd say. <laughs> so yeah. something that every writer should know is that this is a lot more work than you ever imagined uh -huh. and that you have to get good at a lot more skill sets than you ever imagined. And that's true whether you have a traditional big five publisher or a mid-side publisher or if you do the indie, it doesn't matter. So just to tick through some of them, you know, social media platform, right? Everyone talks about that. I've heard some words that some big publishers, if you don't have 25,000 or 50,000, and followers forget about it on your own platform so that's just a lot of work to build that up so if you're not a celebrity already now, did you manage to do that no i got something like five thousand followers on multiple platforms so the normal suspects facebook twitter goodreads instagram and then linkedin is coming up all of those right so i did all that stuff in terms of skill sets, I taught myself how to use one of the Adobe video editing software, had a book trailer, okay, which is actually in five languages. <laughs> so that's another skill set I learned. Figuring out social media, web design, you know, I have 17 different 
internet platforms, right? And all these different languages and countries uh, translated. You got to figure out how to use WordPress. <laughs> okay. And even if you got a publisher, you need to do this because how do you put up a page very quickly if you want to do something like a freebie, right? How do you direct traffic back to your webpage? You better figure out how to use Google Analytics, right? To figure out whether it's even useful because you can do a lot of stuff on social media and I won't name platforms, but some of them seem to say that you're doing well, but it turns out if you actually check the actual traffic, you'd be shocked at how little it is. So be a cynic about any of them because there's a lot of this. This is just extracting money from authors, right? <laughs> Lots of There's so, plenty of that around. Yes. Yeah. So social media, I won't go into specifics. Some of them don't work at all. That it is in a very Darwinian ecosystem with all of these writers trying to get their books out. And quite honestly, a lot of folks trying to take advantage of writers, try this, try that. A lot of that stuff doesn't work. And something that might work, six months later, it won't work. I like to joke that here's how you write a bestseller. Here's how to make money as a writer. Write a book about how to market your book. <laughs> <laughs> and even the best ones, and there are a number of them I found very useful, but I found that how long do the techniques that they describe work, they have a short time frame because everyone gets onto them and then the market moves on. So it's hard to figure out anything consistent that continues the work, right? So, yeah. Well, I would vote for, I think that a lot of the time, the oldest methods work the best. Mm-hmm. My observation over the past 30 plus years being involved in this, this nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> and nothing beats the word of mouth. So the more books you can get into people's hands who actually would read it, who would talk about it, the better. I think Mm -hmm. that next up is speaking, sharing about your book, getting into Mm -hmm. books, and of course, bulk sales are always nice if you can get them. And I think the world of podcasting, actually, have you done a lot of podcasts? Has podcasting helped you get the word out? Yeah, I actually have. I've done eight podcasts in sort of the last four months or so. But for my book about the future, there can be a number of them about as a futurist, right? And yes. so it's a niche. Again, podcasting is a little difficult. What are, there's order of 2 million podcasts out there now. <laughs> so it's hard, right? <laughs> Sorry, Robin, but the competition has grown quite a bit in, I know. in your world. <laughs> Don't even talk to me about that. Back in 2000, and I didn't want to admit, it was like when the very first, I don't even remember the name of it, the very first podcasting platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and right before podcasting, there was internet radio. Right. I had my own internet radio station called Authors 101. Mm. And then I stopped. I mean, I could be the queen of mm-hmm, <laughs> podcasting mm-hmm. if I just kept going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did it for like a few years and I was like, this takes a lot of time. <laughs> I don't know how to monetize this because it was so new. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not going to go get sponsors. You know, anyway. So. <laughs> yes. So you asked the question, what's successful and what isn't? So I mentioned yeah. social media. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. It's hard to figure out what actually works there. Um, advertising on Amazon and, um, and all those sorts of things. Quite honestly, it's very hard to make that formula actually work. 
You know, Amazon, if you're on select, they pay you quote unquote 70% royalty. If you're not on that, if you try to go wide, then you're at 35%. But, you know, the ads can take all that back off your, out of your pocket again. And if you're on Amazon only, then guess what? The bookstores look at Amazon as their enemy. So they're not going to buy it unless it's available, for example, on Ingram Spark. So I went wide. I used Ingram Spark and Amazon and Smashwords, which is now merged with Drafted Digital. Quite honestly, now I hate to say this, but you probably only need the first two because Ingram Spark now offers EPUB, but you need those two platforms. And then, I mean, let's face it, the publishers, the big publishers still have a huge advantage on the bricks and mortar bookstores, right? So if you go to Barnes and Noble, they have more of the current leadership there, the CEO and all are trying to encourage sort of more independent bookstore manager choices. So you can go to individual bookstores and get them to take your book. Make sure on Ingram Sparks you set that you will accept returns. You're going to have to take that financial risk because they're going to send them back. But do that. And you know each of these individual bookstores, they're managing a tiny little business and they've got hairs on fire. Way too many things to do. Hard to figure out what to bring in that's not part of the stuff sent in by publishers, the big publishers. So they tend to default to those ones. Yeah, because it's they have to do a whole separate order versus just looking at a catalog of 75 books for that month and then just yeah. checking boxes and, and doing their PO with the sales <laughs> that they see four times. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So that's probably the biggest disadvantage of the indie route is that it's far harder to get into the bricks and mortar bookstores, but you can. And the biggest disadvantage, I think, for the main publishing houses is that first you got to find an agent and that you know takes you order of a year or so. Then the agent has to sell your book to one of the publishing houses and that takes order of a year or more. And then once you've gone down that route, once you've signed on the line, then you get the attention for a small amount of time, maybe six weeks, maybe a couple months, because I've heard that the typical editor now has to put out 30 books a year, something like that, because of all the consolidation in the publishing industry. It's a low margin business <laughs> and it's a lot of pressure. And so if your book hasn't performed right away, then it easily gets uh, relegated to the afterthought market. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, really, it's a shame because the truth is that it takes a couple of years of consistent marketing for a book to really get its legs. Yes. And most authors quit way before that. Yes. Either traditional or indie, even the authors themselves, right? Oh, well, I tried to promote my book for three months and it didn't take off. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, uh, what was it? I love the story. Uh, Dune was turned down, I don't know, a dozen times. And then finally, Frank Herbert had it published since 1965 with Chilton's, which makes auto repair books you see in the garage there. <laughs> <laughs> That's who published Dune first, Chilton's of all oh. things, right? Yeah. And so it takes a long time for some of these books to have any visibility. So if you are indie, you control that. And you can continue to spend the money to market your book if you choose. You can plow all of your royalties back into advertising, right? If you feel like it and just uh, run I'm it at a break. I'm an idea. Paying for ads for books is not a good 
method. I don't care what platform you're on. Yeah, because you're just- It, it never worked. It yeah. didn't even work in the industry before there was anything but ads. It didn't work. <laughs> right. The only people it works for are the brand name authors like Stephen King or John Grisham. And, hey, their new novel's out. Well, that's you pay for that ad because the, the fan base is there. Well, I would say there's a small caveat to that. For example, my book is tiny little bestseller list in Italy at the moment, my Italian version. Because if you're spending all your royalties back onto advertising for a little bit, then you get into the organic part of the algorithm and then okay. it starts working. Well, that- Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I have to say, my book is really hard because it is not a single genre. It's cross genre. It's a love story and adventure and it's philosophical and it's near future speculative stuff. So it doesn't fit. If you're selling mysteries or romance, you're going to be far better to work those lever. And it's fiction is far harder than nonfiction because. If you're trying to fix your washing machine, you go online and look for the best book on fixing your washing machine. You've got a problem to solve. Nonfiction solves problems. So fiction is just, well, I don't even know what I want to read, right? And now you've got to go from, I think I want to read something to this genre and to this kind of subject. And so to filter through that, it's really hard. So yeah. So It really is because your target market might have nothing else in common other than they like murder mystery spy thrillers or something. I mean, you know, it can be very difficult. Yeah. I mean, I find that folks that are interested in quantum physics actually will buy it as much as people that are interested in science fiction. And uh, so I have a tagline that is for the intelligent reader because I found (laughs) that people that actually are okay to think about consciousness and, you know, our robot sentient, that's not your science fiction book that's just for fun beach rate. This is a little deeper. Then how do we find those folks that are interested in in our book? That's really hard. So, yeah. Well, it seems like you're doing a fantastic job so far, and I wish you continued success with all of your endeavors and especially the unfettered journey. I wish you an unfettered journey. (laughs) Well, thank you. So yes, thanks for uh, having this conversation with me, Robin. It's been really fun. And I hope all of your listeners will go out and get unfettered journey. It's, uh, as I said, won eight, it's won 10 awards. It's in eight languages and you can find it every place that you buy your books. Wonderful. Well, Gary, thank you again for being with us today on the Author's Corner. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to another amazing episode of The Author's Corner. You're one step closer to writing the world-changing book you've dreamed about for years. To access today's show notes and other helpful resources, simply visit our website at theauthorscorner.com. A positive review would be appreciated. Until next time.